Okay. You know, as the, the turmoil roils around the world right now, it always is, but we're particularly aware of it right now with Russia and Ukraine and We've just come out of a pandemic and there are all sorts of got inflation and things are just up in the air, topsy-turvy, and we feel disoriented and things, we're very aware, even here in the West, that things are sort of falling apart, perhaps internally too. Um, It's just wonderful to know, not only to focus on the fact that we believe that the evidence strongly points in the direction of the fact that a crucified Messiah who claimed to be the Son of God rose on Easter morning. The fact that we know right now around the world, of course, various time zones, Christians from every stripe are celebrating the resurrection of the Son of God and what that means for us. And so we want to we want to rejoice in that today in the sermon time. We've been worshiping. We'll continue to. It's a a time of worship where we particularly want to dig into the reasons for what we're singing about and and praying about and gathering for. Um, John gives us evidence uh, so we've been in Revelation, we'll continue Revelation, but for this Holy Week, we've chosen to, John wrote Revelation, he was the disciple closest to Jesus, we've decided to take his gospel, he also wrote the book of the gospel of John, and to look at what he says, Good Friday, we were in John 19, and now we're in John chapter 20. Um, at the end of his book, he writes a, a verse that Nathaniel just finished with, which is that he gives us the reason for his writing, and he says, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in believing you might have not death, but life. Uh, And the scriptures are clear that we are born into death through our sin and inheritance and representation in the first Adam. Jesus came as the second Adam to bring us from death to life. So that's why John writes. So in particular, I want to speak to those of you who just, you're here questioning, you're here open uh, it's Easter and you may not normally come and ask these sorts of questions or sit under singing and, and teaching and preaching about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. What does this mean for me? I want to speak particularly to you. Thank you that you're here. You are part of this family. We're so glad that you're here. I want you to know that John is writing these things about the resurrection of the Christ as a historical event that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God and in believing the result that you might have life. And then to the rest of us who believe and are walking with Christ, but we're topsy-turvy too. We're in this broken world. We're broken people. I want to, to encourage you in your belief and for you to, to leave here believing even more. I remember Tim Keller, um, he read a 800-page tome by N.T. Wright on the resurrection of the Son of God. And he said it changed him. And he asked himself the question, did I not believe in the resurrection before I started this book? He said, I, I came to the conclusion, I did, I really, I truly believe, but if I had a thimbleful of, of belief in the resurrection before, this book gave me like a bucket. And so I just had, I believed more. So I want, I want you to believe more and to understand more what the resurrection means for us as those who, who trust in Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Lord, what it means for us today, what it means for us moving forward into the future. There's a story that I've told a few of you, so pardon the redundancy, but there's a story of a Russian rabbi who was in Russia, and he was walking in the cold of the night, and his, it, it is said that his, his soul, um, his soul and, his, uh, and his thoughts, he was lost in thought and soul, and it was even colder on the inside, on his inside. He was just questioning and disoriented and a bit lost colder on his inside than it was in the Russian night for him. And he wandered in his aimlessness and questioning lost in thought into a Russian military compound. 
And the officer barked at him. He, he bumped into, sort of out of his stupor, into an officer. And the officer barked at him, who are you and what are you doing here? In Russian, of course. I can't, I can't do that. Sorry. Um, the rabbi responded as he was pulled out of his, uh, out of his, you know, ennui. He responded, how much do you get paid every day? And, of course, the officer gruffly said, what do you mean? He thought he was being surly. Uh, and he said, I mean no disrespect, but um, I ask you that because I will double. Whatever you get paid every day, I'm willing to double it if you will simply ask me those two questions every day. Who are you? And what are you doing here? And I just want to say that those are, those are we need solid answers to those two questions. Who are we and what are we doing here on planet Earth? And I want to say that most people don't have solid answers to those questions. And I want to, uh, I want to put forward today that the resurrection gives us solid answers to those two questions. So let's, let's jump in together. I just want to, uh, I just sort of lifted a few things. Uh, honest confession, I, didn't, I wasn't really in the commentaries on this one. I really felt like I just wanted to meditate and sink into the text itself in, in, in John 20 and see what the Lord had for us and for me. So we're going to look first at just the surprise of his followers in a variety of ways. Um, so the surprise of his followers, if you have your Bible open, just keep it open. Um, the first thing is that we see is that only the women showed up in verse 1. Um, only the women showed up. And why do I mention that? Because Jesus, if you read the rest of John, if you read the Gospels, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see very clearly that Jesus came. It's very clear. Jesus came on a mission. He came for one pointed reason. He did a lot, but his, the, the tip of his funnel, the tip of the spear for him, his mission was to come and to give his life as a ransom for many to die. Not an accident, orchestrated by God to save us, to die in our place, because we, it's either us or him. He came as the fall guy to save us. And so he told, the point I'm trying to make is he tells in the Gospel of John leading up to this point, in the other Gospels, he tells his disciples over the three years he's with them, he tells them over and over again, after they spent some time together, he starts to open up the box, as it were, and say, guys, he'll huddle them up and say, guys, listen, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Here's how it's going to go down. We're going to go to Jerusalem because he did most of his ministry up in Galilee, north of Jerusalem. There's going to come a time when my mission is going to come to a head and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed by all the intelligentsia, by the chief priests and the scribes. And they're going to crucify me. But don't worry on the third day. Whenever he said that, he said this right at the end of that. But don't worry on the third day, the son of man's going to rise. And this was so counter to their understanding of what a king did. A king came to crush the opposition, not to be crushed. It was so counter to their understanding, and the Spirit had not yet given them understanding as to what he would do, that at the cross they were all completely blindsided and just scattered. Mission over. And to show us how, again, how blindsided they were, even though he told them over and over again, I'm going to die, and then that actually happened, you would have thought some, some one of them would have been like, okay, remember when... He told us over and over again he was going to die and be betrayed at the hand of sinners in Jerusalem. That just happened. Remember what he said after that? He said he was going to rise on the third day. Hey, the third day's tomorrow. Let's say it's Saturday night and their Shabbat, their Sabbath. Let's go to the tomb just in case. None of them did that. None of them even. Showed. And the ones who did, the women, were they going because they remembered that he said he would rise? 
and that they were going to see if that was actually happening. How do we know that's not what's happening? Yeah, they, they're going with spices. You don't go with spices if you're expecting a living savior. They're going with spices to basically, uh, because they believe that his, his body is dead and starting to decay in the Judean heat. And they're going to just pay their respects to their beloved savior and Messiah and, um, and, and, and pack his body. If they can get past the guards, if they can get the guards to acquiesce. So they show up with spices and it's only they who show up. None of the disciples who've been told that he's going to rise show up. Um, this would not have been written down. It makes the disciples look extremely incredulous, not like faithful followers of Jesus. Uh, and it makes them look extremely bad. These were not credulous bumpkins. These guys were every bit as hard. And we see that with what Nathaniel, anyway, Thomas. He's our last point. Thomas, unless I touch it, see it, have hard evidence, there's no way I'm going to believe. Jesus doesn't flout that. Okay, these guys were not credulous. They didn't believe. Even when he showed up, they were still trying to process it. It's not what they expected. Um, also, the, we aren't told this in John, but in Luke 24, 11, even when the women did go and they saw the empty tomb, they ran back to tell um, the followers, the tomb's empty. And then we see Peter and John running to the tomb. Uh, we learn in Luke 24, 11, they didn't believe the women. It says, we thought it sounded like us to, as an idle tale. Even when the women told us what Jesus had told us, the crucifixion played out just like he said. They're telling us now the story. Actually, the resurrection has happened just like he said. They didn't even believe it then. They thought they're just spinning a yarn here. So they're extremely incredulous. Um, and the fact that the women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb um, is wonderful. But if this were written as a tale uh, that, was, that was fabricated in the ancient world, it never would have included this detail because women could not even testify credibly in a court of law. That was just the way the society was set up. It was wrong. Uh, but, but if it were fabricated and not this, this is the way it actually happened, it never would have been written in this way. Um, so... Let's, let's shift a little bit to just how disoriented they were and sort of how we get scatterings in the different gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus in the empty tomb. The, so the women are first witnesses. At first, they're disbelieving. They're disoriented. You have Mary kind of sort of just walking in circles around the garden, as it were, um, and even talking to Jesus like, are you the gardener? You know, she's, it's, she's completely disoriented. She's not getting it at all. Um, where have you laid him? She asks her risen Lord. I mean, that's, there's a bit of comedy here. Can we not admit this? This is, this is a grave okay, occasion, but it's also a very joyous occasion. And there's comedy. They ran out with joy and in dis, almost disbelief. They were so happy they didn't even know what to do with it. This is the way that real people react to things they don't expect when they're super uh, encountering something they weren't expecting, but that's lovely. Um, so, so she basically says to Jesus, where has, his de- where has my Savior's dead body been moved to? Because I'd like to anoint him with these spices and cry over his corpse, please. She basically says that to the gardener. Just tell me where you put him as she's weeping. Um, the men in verse 19 are locked in a room even after they hear that Jesus has been resurrected. And even after they see that the tomb is, is empty, they're still terrified. What does this mean for us? We all scattered We all said, the last thing they said to Jesus was, we'll never leave you. Peter said it, and then they all piled in, it says, and they all said, yeah, none of us are ever going to leave you. They all boost when he gets crucified, which one of the theological points there is he died alone to save us alone. Nobody helped. None of us can help with our salvation. Jesus did it all. He needs no help. 
He simply offers it, as Justin said earlier. He offers it to any comers, to any comers, no matter your sin, no matter your past, just come. So they lock themselves in a room. They're afraid of the Romans too. If this is true, what's going on? Does somebody steal the body? They don't know. So let's talk about the discrepancies briefly, okay? And then move to point two. Um, Actually, the slight discrepancies or apparent discrepancies, I'll say, in the gospel accounts are actually a sign of of, uh, true testimony. um, I've I've read and listened to um, expert, forensics experts recently who say, actually, one of the signs that you know that people are making up a tale is if their stories are dead exactly ironclad the same with no... uh, Stephen's a trial attorney. He's been an assistant DA and he's sitting here nodding his head. I didn't pay him to do that because it's true. When you hear that there's no slight discrepancies at all, it means that they weren't... These these weren't separate witnesses looking in on the same event. They're all going to have core things that are the same, but they all saw it from their perspective, especially if they're in a state of disarray, if somebody's just been murdered or something like that, you're not thinking clearly. These are the kinds of accounts that we actually get. This is corroborating evidence that this is true testimony. Okay, so um, let me read from a, an Oxford scholar uh, who was a classics major at Oxford. It was Oxford or Cambridge, I think it was at o- Oxford. Classics major, studied Greek in, in uh, Latin, he, um, he fluently read ancient uh, Latin and Greek texts, and, uh, as well as the New Testament in much simpler street Greek, Koine Greek. And he, J.B. Phillips is his name, he wrote, at the time of C.S. Lewis, they are contemporaries, the guy who wrote Narnia, um, he wrote this uh, people's version of the New Testament because he, he was like, man, the, the, New, the King James is a wonderful translation, and it is, but it's archaic. It doesn't sound like the way we talk. The New Testament was written in street language for everyday people. To understand. So he writes it. It's a great translation um, at, from, the, from the Greek itself, by himself. And Lewis applauds it. I think he even writes an intro to it. He says this, after having spent a lot of time translating the New Testament from the Greek, Philip says this. He says, this emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus sent me back to restudy the gospel records. Let us freely admit that the stories of the rising from the dead of the man Jesus are not mounted or arranged as evidence for any court of law. Or for that matter, for any critic, I should be highly suspicious of them if they were. People who are frightened and despairing, suddenly confronted with evidence which contradicts all their previous experience of life, can hardly be considered to be ideal witnesses. Wouldn't you be shaken to the marrow if a young man whom you had uh, seen die publicly in agony on a Friday greeted you with a cheerful greeting on the following Sunday? Does it matter whether there was, quote, one man in white or two who spoke to the bewildered women at the open sepulcher? John mentions two. He says there are two angels at the gravesite where Jesus was. And Matthew says he, he mentions one. He doesn't say there was just one. That's how I explain it. It's an apparent discrepancy. Matthew never says there weren't two. He just mentions one. That's fine. There, was, there were one. And in fact, John says there were two. Um, okay, so he says, does it really matter? Whether there is one or two, can we not understand that a woman half crazy with grief and with eyes nearly blind with weeping should suddenly mistake a male figure in the early morning light for the gardener? Have we never been so overwhelmed with grief or disappointment or both that we literally do not see anything else? So just uh, one more detail uh, that to me testifies to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Again, Lacona. Michael Lacona, he's speaking at Memorial Drive Press next week. He's an HBU scholar. He's one of the world experts. N.T. Wright's written an 800-page book on it. There's so much evidence. I'm just picking out a couple things that sort of devotionally kind of landed on me. The folded face cloth. 
Okay, um, so so there's the uh, the surprise and almost disbelief of his followers, and then the two something that grabbed me is the folded face cloth. It's a small detail. It's almost incidental, and I think historically it kind of is. It's just something John noticed. There's no such thing as a historical uh, uh, fictive novel, um, like uh, historical fiction back then, where you would include like Tolstoy, all these details that make it seem real to life. That 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 genre didn't exist, as far as I understand it. And so John. Even if he was writing fiction, he wouldn't have included this detail. But in verse 7, we find that he goes in, and he's, he's younger, and so he's out-sprinted Peter. And he's cautious enough, John is, to something amazing has happened here. This tomb is open, and he peers in. Peter just rushes. Peter's behind him, but once you get there, Peter just, as Peter, much more of a bull, right? He just runs right in. And what John sees is, he sees the, 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 the cloths around Jesus' body cast aside. Wonderful. By the way, not something that a ba- uh, people who had stolen the body would have done. Why would you unwrap a dead body before you take it? That's the opposite of what you would do. You just get the heck out of Dodge, and it's disgusting. Why would you do that? You wouldn't. But also, here's the deal. The folded, he notices, and he just says it without any comment. There is a folded face cloth, a separate, and it was folded. Weird. Historical detail. Just, did John just notice one, okay? So bandits wouldn't have done this, um, Again, it's not something that John would have invented, almost certainly. It has the ring of reality to it. It's a historical tidbit John remembers seeing at the moment of high alert, utter surprise, dawning wonder, realization, and joy. But, so that's the fact of it, but I also just the feel of it almost is what gets me more. Not just the fact, the historical fact of it, but the feel of what, is, what, are we, what does this say? Can you imagine Jesus as he slowly unwraps before dawn, he has just literally gone through hell for us. He has endured hell for sinners to make us right with God. He's finished the work. He'll never have to do it again. It's time to bring all men and women of any stripe and race and tribe and tongue and history and past to himself. He's done the work. Um, as he takes the face cloth off, and just can you see him? Just kind of folding it neatly with a great order. Sort of like he's saying, death, I'm done with you. I'm laying you aside. You're finished. You're defeated. I love that. And that's indeed what he's saying. So there's a lot of theological import there, I think, to, to that historical detail. We could go on. So what's the big deal? I want to spend a little time in this. What's the big deal? And I, I would wrestle with this for years, and I still do. Um, I think a lot of us think uh, that the res- when we think of the resurrection, we think of, hey, our beloved Savior came back to life. But that's not what the early Christians, they were so excited and glad to have him again. But as soon as they had him again, what did he do? After 40 days, he, he, he boosted. Yeah, Nathaniel went like this. Peace, you know, peace be with you, and I'm out. But he said, it's going to be better. I'm going to send my spirit. Don't worry. Okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't that their friend was back. They understood that the resurrection meant something far more significant. As we sang about in all the songs leading up to this, it, what it meant, and we'll get into this now, what it meant was that Jesus didn't die for himself. He didn't know any sin. Only sinners deserve to die. Who did he die for? He died for us. He died for sinners. Anyone who would come to him and look to him uh, as taking what they deserve, he died for. Therefore, he didn't rise for himself. When he rose, he rose to defeat the power of death for a new type of human. 
who would trust in him. And it was also a sign, we'll get into this, that his payment for your sin was accepted by the Father. That is what the early Christians understood, and that is why, that is what sent them out into the street proclaiming a gospel. Death no longer has a hold on this. The power of sin has been broken. And, and so um, we can look at this. So the, what I'm going to, getting at is, or, you know, other people had risen from the dead before this. In the scriptures, we have accounts of it. Jesus, it, it happened in the Old Testament. God had raised people from the dead through prophets. Jesus had, had raised people. This isn't just a guy rising from the dead. It's a new humanity rising out of the power of death that sin had over us, okay? So what's, why, why, let's look at a few things that kind of speak this to us. Why the first day of the week? You don't hear about this a lot, at least I don't. Why is it important that Jesus rose on the first day of the week? Why is that now our day of Christian rest and worship? Think about it. Jesus came to complete what he'd been doing through the Jewish people to give to the world. Right? It, wasn't a, it wasn't just something, he just stepped on the scene out of nowhere into a void. He stepped onto the scene out of centuries of preparing a people for himself and preparing the world for himself. When was the Jewish Shabbat? Think back to the first creation, Genesis chapter one. God made all things in six days and then what happens? He rested, right? And that was the Jewish day of rest on what day of the week? That's right, on, the, on Saturday, and somebody said it, on the last day of the week. So you work, 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 we imitate God, it's analogical. Just like God, we image God when we work, work, work six days a week, not even five, six days a week, all right? Take that, France. Just kidding. Uh, France had a famously like 30 or 35 hour work week. And then, okay, so they work six days a week. I have a joke here. It's really, it's not about France. Uh, okay, we love France. Where's little Moss? There she is. She's, she's winking at me like, you better. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip it. So it's not, it's not a French joke. We love the French. Okay. Um, Six days a week he worked, seventh day he rested, and it's enough for us. But he tells us, you must rest, you must worship, take it easy. Remember that I've created all things, you need it, all right? So the last day, after all the work, you're tired. Jesus fulfills that and does something new. Doesn't, he doesn't, the day of rest is no longer the last day after we're tired, it's the first day. It's the day, the first day of the week, it's before the work. It's before the rest of everything we're going to do for the history of, of ever. It's the first thing God does. It's to permeate the resurrection of Jesus, defeating death and the power of sin. Is to permeate every day of the week moving forward that follows it and every bit of the new creation. Okay? And so, um, the first day of the week, uh, the first thing we get in Genesis is Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. What we're seeing here is a new order. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says it this way. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. So God, who's God? He's creator. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He says, this same God, um, he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? This same God has done something through the death, the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is, it's a new, it's on the order of the first creation. It's a new creation event. It's just as powerful and even more powerful as when God first spoke light into the nothing, into the void. Something even bigger has happened. Um, 
why John 19, 41, we're backing up a little, we didn't read this text, I'm cheating a bit, but at the end of John 19, we learned that Jesus was laid in a new tomb. Why? I have to admit, again, confession, I didn't even look at commentaries here, okay, so that's a confession, I could be dead wrong, just thinking about it, sinking into it, praying about it, cogitating on it, meditating on it. Um, we know it's in fulfillment of the scriptures, number one, but that's kind of where we end most times. It, it, it's a fulfillment. Jesus, it was said that he would uh, be buried in a rich man's tomb. And indeed he was. A tomb that was carved out of rock that no one had ever lain in before. But why? And one of the things, and I'm sure it's much more than this, but one of the things that comes to mind is that tombs are a place of death. Death is a ravager. God didn't make us to die. God didn't make anything to die. Death is a consequence of the sin of Adam that spread out over all creation and comes to us as we're born by our parents from Adam. It's not supposed to be that way. Even the elephants mourn their dead. Even the elephants know death is messed up. It's not supposed to be that way. This is a new tomb. Death has never been in this tomb. The only dead person that's been put here is Jesus. And guess what? He left it. He literally redefines the tomb. Tombs, because of the resurrection of Jesus, become a place where you walk out of them. Isn't that amazing? Death no longer holds this new humanity. Though we die, we pass through death to be with our Lord, and one day we will be reunited to our resurrected bodies just as he was out of that grave. Death, where is your sting? We still mourn it because the resurrection has come, but we still live in these shadowlands, but one day it's going to be eviscerated. And indeed, Christ eviscerated it. And the, the early church got this. Um, so what's the significance of the resurrection here? Um, again, like I've been saying, it's not a man rising to life after being dead. It's a new humanity coming to life on the order of Genesis 1 and 2. The, uh, the Jewish idea, and I mentioned this last Easter, so if your memory is long, you're going to get it again. Um, but good ideas bear repeating. Jewish, the Jewish idea of the resurrection put forward by Martha when a li- about a week, I think my timeline is, is uh, Casey and I were talking about it before the gathering, is a bit shaky on this, but very, very um, close on the heels of going to the cross, not too far before it, Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend from the dead. He'd been dead four days. And Martha comes to him before he does this, and she professes this amazing Orthodox Jewish understanding of the resurrection. She said, yes, I believe that we will all be resurrected on the last day. The Jewish idea of the resurrection was not that the resurrection would come into the middle of history, but that one day when Messiah came and made all things new, then we would be resurrected and we'd be with him forever and we'd have new bodies and death would be abolished. There was no conception, as far as I understand it, of a Messiah in the middle of history rising. What did that mean for us? What did that mean for us? Um, What does a resurrection that is broken in mean? It means that life goes on. Stay with me. It means that life goes on, but not as before. Okay, let's let's unpack this some. Eternal life comes into us as we trust in the crucified and resurrected Messiah. Okay, in our place. And what does it do? That life, the life of God, the spirit of God, as Christ reigns bodily in heaven and he's going to come back for us one day, his own spirit comes into us and connects us to him, seats us with him and brings him down to us. And that life of God grows in us 
and seals us and makes us right with him and begins truly to change us, to make us like Jesus. And that life doesn't stop until we're finished, until we're glorified, until we see him face to face, until culture starts to change around us. And when he returns, he finishes the work and he makes all things new. You see how it happens from the inside out instead of from a top down sort of way? And there's a a mystery and a wonder to that that was totally unexpected by the Jews. Um, So we still live in this broken world as people who are broken and who sin, but sin no longer identifies us and death no longer has a sting. We're alive, not dead, and we're no longer slaves to sin's power. Day by day, we're being transformed in his image more and more. Let me, um, let me, and this is what you see in the book of Acts. The Christians are perishing, literally dying and being beaten and tormented, but they know they have something. They have the living God inside of them and they have this understanding that death is no longer no longer stands in their way because of the risen Messiah who's in them. Um, And the power of sin no longer identifies them. So this is actually in the text I just read. Let me read on. I'm going to remind you, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a new creation event. Now he goes on to explain what I just said. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. As we die over and over and over again through outward suffering and persecution, through trials, through wrestling with our own sin, but understanding that we've been purchased at a price and our sins been paid for and taken care of, those daily deaths produce resurrection life that, that changes us and makes us more like Jesus and shoots out from us and changes other people and changes culture. And then he finishes, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Um, why was Jesus buried in a garden? Just another question under this sort of um, what's the big deal about the resurrection? Why was he buried in a garden? I think I've said enough now for you to have the answer, right? We see that at the end of John 19, he's buried in a garden and John thinks it's important to tell us this. Why was he buried in a garden? House church, shout it out for me. Takes us back to the garden. He was buried in a garden because he rose in a garden and life started in a garden with the first Adam. And the first Adam encountered the first tree. And how well did he do at that first tree? He failed. And we are born from Adam and we receive that death that comes from his disobedience. But when we are born again, a second time through faith in the second Adam, Romans 5, who was also buried and therefore rose in a garden, who at the tree, the gospel writers through the book of Acts and on call the cross the tree. Through the tree where the second Adam was faithful. He trusted his father. He took the curse of sin that was ours to bear and not his upon himself. And he paid for it. And he absorbed the power of death. And he rose in a garden as a redo to start humanity and creation over again. How wonderful is that? Um, And you see that in verse 22 of John 20 um, that corroborates this. 
what does he do to the disciples? What does Jesus do in verse 22 of, of John 20 to the disciples? He breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Does that remind you of anything in Genesis chapter 2? With God and Adam. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, God makes Adam out of the dust of the earth. And then what does he do? He's not alive yet. He breathes on him. This is God remaking a new humanity because of his resurrection. And now I want to get into the guts, the wonderful guts of what this says about how we are free from our sin and then move to Thomas briefly and then two applications and we're finished. Um, Verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, go say to my brothers. Okay, he says, go tell my brothers that I'm alive. Um, that I'm going to my father and their father. So let's dig into this. What does the resurrection say about his sacrifice and our consequent status? So he goes to Peter. What has Peter done days before to Jesus? Yeah, he's been the strongest advocate of never leaving Jesus. I will stay with you to the end. He's relying on his own strength. I can do this. You don't need to die for me, Lord. You're not going to die. Even if you do die, I'm here for you to the end. No, he fails. Jesus goes to Peter alone, not to rub it in his face, but to reconcile him and to tenderly say, he deals with each of us in our sin and our condition one-on-one. He saves each of us one-on-one. He goes to Peter and he says, I died even for you. Your sin is not too great. Come to me. And he reconciles him. He does the same with James, we're told, his half-brother. We're told almost, not almost embarrassingly, incredibly embarrassingly in the gospels, his family I'm assuming that means his mother, too, because I don't know. Maybe she was absent. But it says like his whole family in the middle of his ministry came to actually basically forcibly arrest him to take him because they thought he was insane. You are saying that you're the Messiah. You're insane. You're our brother. What's up, dude? You're weak. What are you doing? When when a prophet is that close to you, he's not a prophet. Okay, so even his own family, James is included, did not believe he was the son of God and Messiah. You're God? Seriously? You're loony, man. Rejected him until the resurrection. So great was the evidence. So great was the power of the resurrection. Jesus goes to James alone, not to rub things in his face, but to say, okay, I, I know I've grown up with you. I know this is weird, but I am actually the son of God. And I'm alive. You saw me crucified. And it's to, probably to explain things. We're not told much. But James ends up being one of the pillars of the early church. Okay? And dying uh, for his faith. And calling his own half-brother his Lord. How wonderful. Um, so Peter denied him. James disbelieved in him. But now uh, both call him. Uh, he calls both brothers and all of the, the disciples. What does this mean? He says, I'm going to my father and your father. What it means is that he has brought us back into the family of God. He has done the work necessary to, um, to call us, to rightly call us brothers. We're on the same, brothers are on the same level because they come from the same parents. We are now, any, regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done or who you are or where you come from, you come through the blood of Jesus and in the power of his resurrection that has defeated death and sin, you are put on a level with him. You, ha- you stand on a level in the eyes of the Father with his only son, Jesus Christ, if indeed you are in Christ. Um, Paul says this in Romans 4.25, at the last verse of Romans 4. It's one of my favorite verses. He says, he was delivered, delivered up. Why was Jesus delivered up? Because he'd sinned? No. He says, he was delivered up for our trespasses. He was crucified for us 
So he bore the penalty. Here's the last part of the verse. It's wonderful. And raised for our justification. What does that mean? Jesus, the fact that he was raised means you and anyone who looks to Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord have been made just, right with God. It's proof. The fact that he's risen and the early church got this means that regardless of your sin, regardless of your past, if you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, his life for you, his death for you, his resurrection for you, that you are right in the eyes of God with the rightness of Jesus. How wonderful is that? Um, It was God's way of saying the cross was sufficient payment so death can no longer hold my son because he's being, because he died for others. So therefore, in raising him, he was saying, now everyone's free. Who looks to Christ? Everyone. Isn't that wonderful? Um, He puts this negatively in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ is not risen, Paul does, then we are still in our sins then God has not said payment sufficient. But because he's risen, God has said payment sufficient. Isn't that wonderful? And the first Christians got that, and they preached that. Um, A little farther on in the chapter, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And here is where I want to move, pivot, and then to Thomas in a close. Um, If we only, Paul says, have hope, not just in the forgiveness of sins, that is where most Christians stop. I'm speaking to you, Christian, and to anyone in this room. But if we only have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The early church understood that what Jesus' resurrection meant was that a new humanity had started that was free from the power of sin and death, that was going to go on forever, and that Christ was going to return, and he was going to bring us into the full reality that his resurrection promised, into his resurrection reality, okay? Um, and, and so the early Christians were people whose hope extended way beyond this life. I think most Christians today are just living for this life. I hate to say it. And I'm often in that category. And, and if we think about the next life, it's like we think about a sort of a, uh, an evacuation to heaven. That's not at all the New Testament understanding of the new creation. It's that every Augustine said no good thing will not remain. Um, Jesus ate, and we're gonna, this moves us into the last point with Thomas. He ate broiled fish in a real body with his disciples. He sat down and had a meal. He sat with them. He touched them. He said to Thomas, touch my wounds. What does that mean? In part, what it means is that the new creation is going to be tangible, and it's going to be matter. It's going to be mountains. It's going to be a table with pints of ale and I said meat earlier, and I got, I got uh, Stephen's going, mm, ale. I think ale's going to be there, all right? If you're a teetotaler, maybe you don't, all right? Every, anything good, the sunset, the, the mountains, the beaches, the relationships, all the goodness that we enjoy in this life that's good, that God made to be good, is going to be there. But all of the sadness and all of the pain and the cancer and the death and the inner and the sin and the ability to sin is going to be gone. It's going to be gone. Um, and that's the promise. So J.B. Phillips, back to, back to Phillips in his, um, that translator and that scholar, after translating Luke and Acts, it slowly dawned on him that the message of the early church was essentially boiled down to four words. Jesus and the resurrection. God lived among us. He died and he has defeated death. And that is what the early church went preaching. 
Um, and so they literally went to the lions rejoicing because they knew that this life only is not the promise. The promise of the resurrection is that it's going to keep going forever and it's going to be good and he's going to be with us and he's going to make all things new. And indeed, he started that now. So briefly and finally, I touched on it. There's this upper room that Nathaniel read about. This probably my favorite part of John 20, um, notwithstanding Mary and the gardener and that wonderful scene. And we have Thomas, this hard-boiled skeptic. And what has happened is that Jesus comes into this upper room that's locked. And even though his disciples have heard that he's resurrected, they're terrified because they're still not fully believing. And so he comes in and he, he's in his resurrected body, which I think accounts for some of the discrepancies. Why, doesn't, why don't some people recognize him? They didn't expect it. They're in disbelief. But also his resurrection body, was, it's still the same Jesus. He still has the holes, but it's different. Our bodies are going to be different, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. It's like an acorn and an oak tree. There's continuity. The, the oak tree comes from the acorn. It's the same, but it's different. It's better. Um, and so Jesus comes in and he says, and so he reveals himself to his disciples and he eats with them. And uh, Thomas wasn't there though. And so they tell Thomas in their excitement, the Lord was here. We met with him. He passed through the wall. He's not a ghost. He, just like he told us. And they say, uh, hey, Thomas says what? He says, oh, awesome. Great. I believe now. Yeah, I remember he told us. That's great. No, he said, what does he say? He says, unless I stick the fingers in the wounds, I won't believe so eight days later, Jesus comes and Jesus turns him into marmalade, squishes him like jelly. No, I'm kidding. He turns him into a newt. No, he doesn't do that either. He could have. He would have been within his rights. He doesn't do that. What does he do? On the contrary, he doesn't even make him feel bad. He encourages his, he, he encourages his, that's recorded. He actually encourages him in his doubts. We were talking about this last night. He, he says, press into your doubts. And as you press into your doubts, press into me. Consider the evidence. Consider it. Come touch me. Put your hand in my side where the spear went all the way to his heart. Come. Do what it takes. Because a faith that presses into its doubts and finds Jesus through them and isn't afraid of that because there's confidence there that Jesus is, if he is truth, if he is who he says he is, who the scriptures say he is, the evidence will lead to him. Even if I still have questions. And that is the truth. And a faith that wrestles through that is stronger on the other side. And in fact, that's what we see with Thomas, because he doesn't even all he needs from Jesus is that. And he doesn't even stick his fingers in the holes. What does he do? He falls and he says, my Lord and my God, strongest profession of faith in the Gospels from a skeptic. So I want to encourage you in your doubts. To doubt your doubts, as Keller is fond of saying, and to consider the evidence and to understand that the go where the evidence leads. But I believe that the best answer to what we're given is that Jesus wasn't stolen. He wasn't not who he said he was. He was crucified. He was dead as a doornail. And then he rose. And what does that mean? Um, so after all this, John wrote... Uh, he says he wrote this that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God and savior of the world and in believing in him have life, have life. Um, and Jesus ate with them, right? He ate with them and he wasn't a ghost. And so again, like I said, this means that the new world coming will be real. We'll eat, we'll climb mountains, we'll embrace, we'll work without sweat, without laboriousness. We'll adventure, we'll explore, we'll build, we'll problem solve. And we may even cry, but for joy, not for sorrow. 
And I think that leads to, what does this all mean for us? Two things. It means, first of all, that we can weep as Christians. We don't have to be happy, happy, smiley, smiley people. That's not real. We live in the shadowlands. There's pain here. Jesus came to enter our pain. We can weep as Mary did, but not as people with no hope. Because we worship a living Savior. Who is going to take us beyond the walls of the world. Who has cut a hole through the gray rain curtain of this creation. And is going to take us uh, into far green fields. Where he'll be with us forever. Um, we can enter pain and face it and have joy that's not glib, but solid and lasting. Um, briefly, um, Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien wrote, of course I have to mention Tolkien before I close, you know this, it's Easter. Um, he wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf by Niggle. Uh, and, a, and a niggler is somebody who, take, who tends to all the details of things almost fastidiously and over, overboard. And so this... He's, an, he's a painter, Niggle is a painter, and he is painting this, his life's work is this huge tree that he has in his mind. You ever done this? You have something in your mind, you know exactly how it's going to work out, but the real world, you don't work it out so well. Anybody ever been frustrated by that reality? Yeah, me, I'm the number one. He ends up in his life painting one single leaf. It's perfect, but it's a leaf on this huge oak tree or whatever. That's his life's work, and he does it really well, but he's so frustrated, he keeps getting interrupted all the time. And he's not up to the task like he thought he was, and, he, and then he dies unexpectedly by helping somebody with a bike or something like that. I can't remember the details. Anyway, the point of the story is that when he gets through the other side into the new creation, what does he discover? He discovers that that leaf that he did, that he spent his time on, that he spent his life on, was a deposit. With all of the interruptions where he was helping people and answering questions and and, and, and fixing someone's bike and then dying because of it. All that seemed wasted, all that seemed lost because of the new creation, it was a seed in the ground. Because of the resurrection, it was a seed in the ground that grew into a real and beautiful oak tree, not just a picture. And that is what, uh, among other things, the resurrection means. I've said this before, but Martin Luther, the reformer, was asked, if you, if you knew that Christ was returning, what would you do? And he said, I'd plant a tree. Think of how, if he, say, say, sorry, if you knew that Christ was returning tomorrow, we all know Christ is returning. He knew Christ was returning, okay? Maybe we all don't know, but he did. If you knew Christ was returning tomorrow, what would you do? And most of us would be like, I go parachuting or something, you know? I go to the gun range. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'd be with my family, okay? He says, I plant a tree because think of how well it would do, okay? The resurrection means that in the new creation, all the deposits that we make in the name of Christ are actually going to grow. Um, back to that Russian rabbi. Um, think back to him. Um, the two questions, who are you and what are you doing here? Jesus's resurrection gives us cogent answers to those two questions. Um, he says in verse 21, and then I close, as the father has sent me, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, so I am sending you. So this is both simple and profound. It's an answer to those two questions. Who are you? Who are you? If you are in Christ by faith, you are a son of the father or a daughter of the Father with full rights. You are a brother or a sister of Jesus Christ. That's who you are, okay? Not your performance, not what people tell you you are, what Jesus and his life and death and resurrection has made you. And then what are you doing here? You're here to be sent just as Jesus was sent by the Father, to go preach the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus, that now goes forth from his life and death and resurrection, we have a mission, and it's to proclaim the kingdom come in Jesus Christ and the free forgiveness of sin in his name. Let me pray.